Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Regional security is a critical issue for the Philippines. Once closely aligned with Western democracies, the strong-arm leadership of Rodrigo Duterte has guided it to a more authoritarian direction, leading critics to voice concern for the country's democratic freedoms. In the international arena, tensions in the South China Seas have complicated a cooling relationship with China, leading the Philippines to diversify its foreign relations and take the development of its defense and security capabilities seriously. Joining me to discuss regional security of the Philippines is Charmaine Misalucha Willoughby, Associate Professor in International Studies at DeSalle University in Manila. Thank you for joining me, Charmaine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I thought that we'd start by talking about the noticeable shift that there has been in the Philippines' regional security stance, especially under the leadership of Duterte. So in the past six years, can you give us an impression of how that looks from the inside? What is the view from Manila as to what's going on with regional security? The administration of President Rodrigo Duterte is quite interesting, to say the least, because Prior to his administration, the Philippines has always had this inclination towards the United States. So in other words, we've always seemed to be pro-U.S. despite some resistance. But when Duterte came to power in 2016, it was as if a sharp turn uh, from being pro-U.S. to pivoting towards China. This pivot to China is understandable to a certain extent because of the economic aspect of the relationship with China. One can make the argument that this is a realignment, not so much in terms of strategy or in terms of common values, but in terms of the benefits that can be reaped from the economic sphere. So when Duterte became president in 2016, he was very explicit about this pivot towards China, primarily to reap the benefits of the Belt and Road Initiative. And he also wanted to make good on his campaign promise of boosting the economy of the Philippines. And this is largely rooted in infrastructure projects. A lot of agreements have been reached with China regarding these infrastructure projects, but unfortunately, these did not bear fruit, not least because of the pandemic. But even prior to the pandemic, there were already some problems that cropped up or that emerged from this issue. Hmm. The pandemic obviously complicated a lot of matters, not just because of the origins of the virus, but also in terms of how the vaccine is being rolled out in the Philippines. I think that pretty much covers kind of, you know, a bird's eye view of what it's like from the Philippines, looking at regional security from being pro-U.S. to a turn towards China. So on a visit to Beijing, Duterte told Chinese leaders, America has lost now. I've realigned myself in your ideological flow. What exactly does this sort of realignment mean in practical terms? Is it just Duterte saying that sort of thing or is he speaking for the Philippines? And is there evidence that there is a actual realignment? 
the realignment, I believe, is largely in terms of economics, not so much on anything else. But this language of hedging, this is actually not new or not surprising because hedging is a strategy of small power. This is a way for small powers in a world of, or in a region of big powers where they can extract benefits and get benefits. If this were a pendulum, it would be swinging or oscillating from one end to another, depending on the benefits that a country can get at a certain period of time. But this language is also very risky. And for the Philippines, this has become evident in regard to the South China Sea. The background here is that in 2016, the Philippines won an award from the Permanent Court of Arbitration. But recently, you know, because of this language of bluffing or gaining leverage from either China or the United States, what's happening in the Philippines is that there have been moves to undermine or minimize the significance of the 2016 award. There have been instances within the domestic sphere of either creating our own nine-dash line, which will not really have any basis on international law, but at the same time, there have also been calls on redrawing our baseline. To me, the implication of this would be, you know, if we were to go forward with redrawing our boundaries and our baselines, this can simply create chaos and confusion among all the claimant states in the South China Sea. Ultimately, this kind of hedging language, which can be seen in how we are undermining or minimizing the significance of the 2016 award, this is very risky because it can backfire on the Philippines' credibility. We have fought long and hard to get to the 2016 award, and that could have been used as a leverage for drawing boundaries, determining which is ours, which is theirs, and making it a baseline, so to speak, on how to move forward in the South China Sea issue. However, because of economic considerations, like I said earlier, the 2016 award has been minimized or undermined. So there is that risk when we use the hedging language, because it can certainly backfire on our own credibility. Mm. Is there a risk as well that it's going to damage the relationship with the US at all? Because we've, we've seen this go wrong, say, back in the 1990s over the US military presence, which was at the Clark Air Force Base and Subic Bay. So deals have fallen through in the past over this sort of language and stance. So do you think that there's a risk of it again? Oh, definitely. I mean, if we don't play our cards right, there's certainly going to be some fallout on how the Philippines deals, not just with China, but also with the United States and also with, with the rest of the, of the region. We like to think that we are now pursuing an independent foreign policy, but in practice, this turned out to be independent from the U.S., but pivoting to China. But this should not come at the expense of reinvigorating and enhancing our relations with other countries in the region. Mm. So yeah, definitely there's going to be some risk involved and we don't want a repeat of the consequences of what happened in 1992 when the U.S. bases were closed down. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess the risk of it is as well, um, the US might look at the region and say, well, Singapore's quite well disposed towards us. Vietnam, we could maybe work with. There are options in the region. That's right. And, you know, we're not the only ally of the United States in the region. There's also Japan, Korea, Thailand, and Australia. And yes, Singapore also has a very robust relationship with the United States. So I think the crux is really, you know, what can the Philippines offer Mm. in the U.S.-Philippine alliance? If we keep on hedging or if we keep on using the hedging strategy to gain more benefits, then there's also a risk that we can just be dropped by our partners and allies. Mm. You spoke of a growing closer to China in some aspects. So how is the South China Sea complicating things? Because there are disputes over territory, there are disputes over fishing water claims, and all of that would just exacerbate any developments, wouldn't it? It would. And well, previously, I've argued that we have largely securitized the South China Sea issue. And that's also the cause of why we cannot move forward Mm. because of this highly tense and securitized place that we've put ourselves into. There's very little room to maneuver on how we can unravel and effectively address the issue. But one way that this complicates, I mean, it's complicated to begin with, but one way in which it complicates things even further is that the South China Sea issue not only questions the validity of the 2016 award, but that's largely the Philippines' fault. But at the same time, because of what the Philippines is doing, it's also questioning the viability of the U.S.-Philippine alliance. And um, to a certain extent, it's also questioning the longevity or the sustainability of alliances in general. This prompts us to rethink the way that we have conducted international relations really is a knee-jerk reaction to the post-World War II era, but are those the same kinds of interactions that we can do now, considering that there are so many new issues to think about? Um, But at the end of the day, really, insofar as the Philippines is concerned, it really complicates our own credibility as a partner. And this serves as a reminder, not just for the Philippines, but for, for the region, that the South China Sea, not just a question of boundaries and who owns what. Obviously, you know, this is not meant to trivialize claims to contested territories. But the South China Sea issue is more than just that. It's also a human security issue. It's an environmental concern. It's about economics. It's not just about security. So a way forward in the South China Sea really is if we can de-securitize the issue, if we can lower the tension by shifting the focus away from you know, something that's strictly in the security sphere to shift it to a human security angle or an environmental angle. So does China see this sort of antipathy that there is towards the United States as an opportunity? Because I'm, I'm curious as to how they could be leveraging it to widen the gap. That surely must be one of their positive outcomes that they'd like. Right, right. This is something that I'm currently working on regarding China's information campaigns in the region. Mm. Uh, Because certainly, you know, the fact that 
there's now a wedge between the United States and, and the Philippines. And because even the Philippines right now is questioning the validity of the 2016 award, I mean, this sounds like it's in the favor of China. But where China can really incentivize or leverage on this closer relationship with the Philippines, number one would be vaccine diplomacy. And I think China is, you know, to its credit, it's doing a good job regarding this. In the Philippines right now, we don't have a choice of vaccine. The only vaccine that's available is Sinovac. And the rollout is not as efficient as we would like, but it's slowly getting there. So this is one way that China can move closer with its relationship with the Philippines, keep on providing vaccines and to help out in the rollout of these vaccines. Um, another way that China can incentivize closer relations with the Philippines is to continue with its infrastructure project. So this is part and parcel of Duterte's campaign promises. And a lot of these infrastructure projects are just pending. Some of them are probably because of the pandemic, construction has stopped and all that. So maybe if, if those can be jump-started, that would be good in terms of bilateral relations between two countries. Mm. Duterte has forged a close relationship with Japan, uh, and Manila has become a focus of its efforts to build capacity among Southeast Asian nations. So is this a security partnership that could gain more importance and maybe work its way into the wedge between China and the US and provide a different opportunity there. Right. This is something that the Philippines can actually take advantage of because especially since Duterte came to power in 2016, the Philippines has spoken of, and very proudly so, we're pursuing an independent foreign policy. But independent doesn't just mean independent from the United States, right? It has to mean a diversification of the Philippines' international relations. And if that means tapping into or enhancing the invigorating relations with Japan, deepening relations with Australia, with the rest of the Quad countries, with the rest of ASEAN countries, to me, this is what it means to pursue an independent foreign policy, to ensure that we're not just dependent on the rising power of the day. This can enable us to strengthen our position and lobby for our national interests. If we're speaking of the hub and spokes model, this can be a way to connect the spokes, not just you know, for the spokes to be connected to the hub, but that the spokes themselves are connected to each other. So the impression that I'm getting from you is that a lot of this is driven by personality, by Duterte himself, and that in the past, the Philippines has been a close ally of the United States, and that there's a sense that it could snap back after next year's election, in which Duterte cannot run, so, well, he, can, he can't run as the president, he could be vice president, but there's a possibility that there, there could be quite a, a change on board for the Philippines after May next year. What's your sense on that kind of thing? What are you expecting? Is there anything you can tell us about that? Right. Well, everybody's looking forward to the 2022 national elections. But realistically speaking, my worry is that not a lot would change. The people in power may change. They should change, obviously, because that constitutionally they should change. But it could be the same 
way of politicking. Unfortunately, I think that we would see more of transactional politics, clientelism, patronage politics, a lot of the oligarchs remaining in power, and vaccines would be used as campaign platforms. A lot of things that should already be in place, such as social safety nets or vaccines, these should be things that ordinary Filipinos should have access to. But these are going to be held hostage by the typical way of politicking in the country. So my sense is that things would pretty much be business as usual, unfortunately. There's also a lot of hope in terms of elections. And this is something that's ingrained in, in Filipinos. We put a lot of faith in elections in the hope that Maybe <laughs> if the right people are in place, then maybe they can be stronger than the system and actually initiate change. This should also serve as a reminder for Filipinos that because of this much faith that we put on elections, then we should really use the 2022 elections to take stock. We need to place the right people in power. We need to make sure that there's plenty of education, the right kind of education going around in terms of the candidates, what they can offer, and really, really be, be involved in these elections. Okay, so we'll take some questions from the audience now. And the first question that we'll take is from Beck Strating, who has a question for you, Charmaine, about ACN. Beck, did you want to make your presence known and ask your question? Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Charmaine. That was an absolutely wonderful summary of some of Philippine security outlook. And it was a real privilege to hear you speak today. I've got a question about ASEAN. I was hoping to, to press you a little bit about Philippines' relationship with ASEAN as a multilateral institution, but also the code of conduct negotiations. You spoke a little bit about the South China Sea, and I'm wondering whether the code of conduct negotiations between ASEAN and China might be a way of lowering the temperature, or is this really just a, a talk-while-take strategy, an opportunity for China to engage in diplomacy while shifting the facts on the ground as these talks are ongoing. And I guess more broadly, you did sort of answer this question as you went along, but thinking about opportunities for collective regional cooperation uh, in coping with strategic competition between the US and China, whether that's sort of within Southeast Asia or between Southeast Asian states and uh, non-ASEAN states such as Australia or Japan. Japan. Are there any sort of specific areas where these states can really strengthen and deepen their cooperation or their collaboration in dealing with some of these very difficult structural changes? Unfortunately, ASEAN does not have a very positive reputation or resonance very recently, primarily in regard to in the way that it, it's responding to the Myanmar crisis. But you know, times of crises, whether it's a pandemic or it's, it's Myanmar, it's times like this that we need multilateral platforms like ASEAN. So obviously ASEAN has a lot of structural constraints, but what is really needed right now is a more visionary or more creative kind of leadership in ASEAN. 
it's the spirit of 1967 where ASEAN has been able to invite outside powers to take a stand against the two superpowers competing during the Cold War. I think the same kind of logic can be implemented, can be copied again today. Obviously, the world is very different in 2021 than it was in 1967. But if ASEAN has been able to do something like that in the past, then it should do something similar today. But that would require a really different type of visioning for the future, a different vision for the future, a more robust leadership for ASEAN. And this is no easy task primarily because of the structural constraints of the organization. But one way that ASEAN can perhaps address some of these issues that we're confronting is really to, like you said, to lower the temperature, to lower the tensions down, and not just look at the claims to sovereignty or the claims to territory, if the narrative, if the language can be shifted to human security or HADR or even climate change. I think those would be best ways to move forward because that drives the point home that, you know, the problems that we're confronting, they're not just the Philippines' problems. They're not just China's problems. It's, it's the entire region's problems. So if we manage somehow to shift the focus, perhaps that's uh, one way to move forward. I don't think we can call it the code of conduct. It would be something else because there's a lot of baggage attached to the COC or the DOC even. So... Just my thoughts. All right. And thanks for that question, Beck. And thanks for the answer, Charmaine. Uh, the next question that we'll take is from Hunter Marsden. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, Charmaine, for the excellent presentation. I thought maybe I would ask about your predictions, if you have any, about the status of the Visiting Forces Agreement that underpins the uh, Mutual Defense Treaty with Washington. Is it possible that this will just sort of stay on ice and outlast the Duterte administration? Or do you, do you see some more resolute action going forwards. Thanks. I like to describe the U.S.-Philippine alliance as when life is good, the Philippines likes to assert its its independence, its detachment from its former quote-unquote colonial master and so on. But when crises hit, and there are plenty of those to go around these days, we tend to gravitate towards our one and only ally. In terms of what's happening right now, not just in the South China Sea, but also in terms of the pandemic and because of domestic sentiments on how the Philippines has responded to COVID-19, the current administration has received a lot of flack about its inability to roll out vaccines quickly. So this prompts the Philippines to recheck its alliance with the United States. But the new factor now is China, because the current Duterte administration is very close to, to Xi Jinping. So again, the Philippines is hedging. It's trying to play both sides off, trying to see where it can get more benefits. But in terms of the VFA, this is now something that's a very big question mark. But the alliance, hopefully, will outlast all of these personalities and quirks in our leaders, because it has done so in the past. Hopefully, the 2022 elections will prove that the alliance with the United States is something that the Philippines still needs, because under the current 
framework or under the current structure of the alliance, it actually buys the Philippines time to modernize our own military. So if we keep on pushing to question or change the alliance, then we're back to zero. We're back to starting from scratch. We have yet to modernize our military. How can we be a credible partner if we don't even have minimum credible defense posture? Right? So under the status quo, the Philippines can actually buy time and improve itself, modernize its military before it could even question a lot of these current frameworks or structures that it finds itself in. Okay, so we'll take one more question uh, that we've got here from Vincent Alessi. Uh, Vince, if you'd like to ask your question. Thanks, Charmaine, for a wonderful discussion. I'm just curious, Australia's been a, a long-time partner with the Philippines. I think this year we celebrate our official 75th year anniversary of diplomatic relationships. And this relationship is, at the moment at least, is heavily focused on security and, and a lot of aid goes to the Philippines to aid with security. I'm just wondering how Duterte is managing that relationship in light of Australia's Prime Minister being quite critical of China and in almost having sort of these political trade wars with China. And I'm just wondering how Duterte manages those two relationships where they are quite dependent on Australia as one country that gives aid, but are also quite overtly expressing an alignment with China. Yeah. Last year, my colleagues and I here in the Philippines did a study on the sentiments of the Philippine strategic community in terms of who they want as partners for the country. And interestingly, Australia is one of the top partners, the third most preferred partner of Filipinos in the strategic community. 80.2% of our respondents said that they prefer Australia as a partner, as opposed to only 20-something percent who said that they preferred China. Uh, the reason why a lot of Filipinos prefer Australia as a partner is because, as you said, we get a lot of aid, there are areas of cooperation, and topmost of these areas would be insecurity, but particularly in CVE, countering violent extremism. The Philippines still has a CVE issue in Mindanao right now. So I think because of the CVE concern in Mindanao, that's probably why Duterte doesn't really mind the anti-China sentiments of Australia for as long as the bilateral relationship between Australia and the Philippines continues with a special focus on CDE and the counter-terrorism. Okay, we might call an end to the interview there now. And uh, Charmaine, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it's been a, a fascinating discussion and a, a look at the regional security of the Philippines. We might have to have you on again next year as we get a bit closer to the election. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow Asia Rising on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. You can follow Charmaine Willoughby on Twitter. She is at Charm Willoughby. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>